Expanded Thinking is a new podcast produced by Talking Words. I'm your host, Walter Mason. And in this special eight-part series of conversations with writers, creatives, and spiritual practitioners, I'll be introducing you to some remarkable guests whose powerful ideas and extraordinary stories will inspire you to live a more fulfilling and more expansive life. Today, I'm chatting to Vanessa Berry, psychogeographer, essayist, memoirist, and mapmaker about gentleness and the power of the small. Vanessa is one of Australia's most intriguing writers, starting out as a creator of cult fanzines back in the 1990s. Her distinctive voice and appreciation of the quirky details of everyday life have seen her create some of the most charming books of the past few years. These include Mirror Sydney and her most recent essay collection, Gentle and Fierce. We're going to talk about finding beauty in the ordinary, oddness, the power of memory, and much more. Vanessa Berry, you have arrived. So good to have you here. And I'm very happy to be here. Hello, Walter. Hello. You've sailed in on a windy day. Uh, When I kissed Vanessa Berry's cheek, it was chilly. It was uh, quite a nice sensation. (laughs) (laughs) Refreshing, perhaps. Refreshing. (laughs) Vanessa. We're here to talk about lots of things and you and your unique vision of the world. Your work is suffused with a gentle energy that speaks to the reader on so many different levels at once. Is there a specific philosophy you follow in life? Well, I very much love this question and it's a great pleasure to kind of step back from the immediacy of, um, say, one particular book or one particular uh, aspect of my writing practice to think about philosophy um, and what underlies it all. Um, And when I was thinking about um, this question, I I went to a line from Gentle and Fierce, my, my most recent book, which I'll just read because it opens up into the my answer to this. Uh-huh. Um, and so it's from a essay called The Ceramic Zoo, which is thinking about figurines and the kind of little animal-related knickknacks that we might have around our, our homes and how they can be uh, a link to wider ecological thinking. But this part of the essay is about my childhood um, and I, I write, my greatest wish was to move carefully through the world to pose no threat to anything around me. And the key word there in terms of a philosophy is care because that's what underlies the work that I do in my writing, but underlies my life too. So brought care really broadly defined. So caring for each other, but caring for the natural world, caring for the things around us and just caring, um, imbuing my life with as much care as I can uh, and thinking about care as a life force, so something which sustains life, which of course it is without care. We, we would not survive. Um, so that's, that's broadly what informs my my writing and and thinking about being a writer too and so thinking about that as an act of care too I mean it's an immense privilege to have readers so people who will read my work and and thinking well what what do I most want to um, instill in my writing what are my strengths as a writer uh, and how can I I transmit that in what I do and taking that very very seriously I've never had a response like that before, as care, as a philosophy of life. I think it's so beautiful and so beautiful to think of. It's going to stay with me. 
Now, you started life as a zine maker, uh, and and you were quite the queen of the underground press, weren't she? <laughs> well, I was very prolific. I think I was um, I was the queen by virtue of being prolific, uh, at least. And my zines were very popular, um, at least in that small world, uh, quite quickly. Sorry, I'll start again. The first zine I made when I was a teenager was called Psychobabble, which was a very 1990s and very teenage name. Uh, but it quickly became quite popular and I would get letters from people saying they'd read it and people would send me their zines and um, and that really spurred me on. And that's where I started as a writer. So with that encouragement, um, I... I developed my voice and uh, writing became my path in life, whereas it actually hadn't really been beforehand. I'd, I wasn't uh, somebody who thought uh, from a young age I'm going to be a writer. I was always creative, but it was it was that zine world which really attuned me to the fact that that was something I was, I was actually good at uh, and could make a difference in. One of your zines is absolutely my favourite and it's one I've given to many people and that's Ferns. I was, I've always loved Ferns and I was so struck when I discovered your zine on Ferns and, and I didn't know you at that point either and um, I just love it. Uh, why do you write about plants? I, um, I made the Ferns zine in 2011. Okay. So I was over 10 years old now and what spurred me on to make I mean zines are often about obsessions and I'd become very fern obsessed for whatever <laughs> reason I just found them they were beautiful plants um, and I mean I come from a family of gardeners and I unfortunately haven't to haven't inherited the green thumb particularly I'm not particularly bad with plants but I don't have that real talent that say my mother or my grandmother um have and, and had with plants. Um, but I've always had them around me and yeah, I guess going back to that idea of care, like having something that you have a nurturing relationship with yes. or they, they're companions to your everyday life. Um, with the ferns, I um, I started to read into them a bit when I had my, my fern obsession appeared. <laughs> uh, and there was an interesting cultural history uh, or recent cultural history of them in um, Britain in the late 19th century. There was a mania for ferns. So it was a fad um, and it was, called, it was given a name in that very classificatory way of the Victorian era where, of course, um, collecting was um, a popular pastime and also more broadly linked to those ideas of colonialism and um, more sinister things. But in the kind of commodity sphere, um, yeah, um, there would be fads for particular things and it was ferns for a while. Um, and I found this quite an interesting idea that it could that there could be particular fads and, and um, you know, whims for particular plants. Um, and, of course, there are all the time and we see we see that. And we're in one right we're now. We're in one we? right now. So I'm a big op shopper and um, one of the things I would consistently find in the op shops um, back when I started op shopping in the 1990s and even now you find them, maybe less so that um, indoor gardening is popular again, but there'd be so many indoor gardening guides from the 1970s or these plastic boxes that had cards that had different plants on them and they're, they're often indoor plants. So, I mean, these things cycle around and, and around. Um, 
And so those those kinds of aspects of, of the ferns interested me. It's actually cyclamen at the moment. I've, I've oh, is really, it? Yes, I've got <laughs> I've got into cyclamen because they're often the, the flowers that are they they come out at uh, gift times of years. So often Mother's Day, there'll be a big range of cyclamen or other times when you might need a ready gift, and so you buy them and you know, they have their flowers and, and they're. Well, that, well, well, do they? Because actually they can live for decades. Like they die right down but they have this kind of tuber um, that stays alive. And if, if you just put them somewhere out of the way because they're not very pretty at that stage and keep watering them, um, then they will come back. Um, and so I have to control myself and not buy all the sad cyclamen <laughs> from the supermarket that get reduced because their their flowers have sagged. Um and so, yes, I've been reading about them too and um, various interpretations of them that they can – I mean, there's all sorts of um, interpretations that come um, with flowers, but it's usually devotion and love for the cyclamen yes, yes. I've, I've found. Um, and, yes, so so I guess the short answer is I'm interested in the, sort of the cultural aspects, but the everyday aspects of um, – of having plants in your life. And I mean, a lot of my writing is about what's to hand and what we have in our everyday lives and paying attention to those things and how they can lead into wider stories, whether they be personal stories or histories or memories that are more broadly held. A couple of years ago, I was delighted to meet a woman who is president of the Fern Society in Britain and uh, she leads fern tours and I was so tempted to pack up. And <laughs> well, that's, I guess, an incredibly tempting <laughs> offer. You could all, all, all organise a cyclamen tour. I'd like to come. <laughs> oh, you've given me an idea now. <laughs> you just mentioned it and, and, uh, and I want to ask you about it because one of the ways your work has influenced my life and my own work is in the observation of the small and the everyday, things that might be sad objects or neglected objects or even uh, objects of scorn, they become subjects for Vanessa Berry's work. And it's it's always so fascinating to see, see you shine a light on them. How did you develop such an eye for the small things in life? My attention to the small things in life, I think, comes from my childhood. I was quite a shy and introverted child and um, I developed this very observant way of being in the world from having that experience. And also, it's not a way of being in the world that's generally very celebrated. I mean, perhaps perhaps a bit more now, Um but definitely when I was a child, um, if you were not an extrovert, it was very difficult to have your voice heard or feel like you were kind of in right, like you were. it was okay to be you. I didn't really ever feel like I had a choice. I was such a quiet person that I, I kind of felt that I would never actually really be any different. So I worked out this way of being from that and partly it was being an observer um, Rather, so I'd, I'd be on the sidelines rather than be right in the middle, midst of the action, and that that was okay, and that was my role in in life. Um, and I think, yeah, it goes back to thinking about attentiveness, thinking about 
caring about the things around me um, and maybe I felt a bit like I was a small thing at some point too, like I was a smaller, quieter person than a lot of um, the people around me who I saw were getting attention. Uh, and I think it developed from from that. Mm. And, and also knowing that I wasn't the only person who was this way. I mean, it can feel like that when you're a child or a teenager, you often feel like um, the particular things that cause you difficulty in life are the th- uh, yours alone, but of course they're not. And writing becomes a way to um, to make connections with people. And I found that it was through writing that I was able to be less introverted or to make those kind of connections. I always felt like I could um, be myself or, or think better on the page often than I could um, when I was you know, physically present and speaking with someone. Of course, we're together speaking now. Hopefully I've overcome that <laughs> barrier <laughs> over the years. But, yeah, that's where it comes from. I think. And I've always just found the things around me to be significant and um, I don't um, understand how I could think them to not be because that's the stuff of my life. And I mean, it hasn't, I don't have a particularly extraordinary life, but most people don't. It is populated by um, fairly consistent sets of things. um, And finding those things important gives a lot of value to your everyday life or enjoyment and pleasure in your everyday life. And also small things always open up into wider things and writing's a way to do that, focusing in on one small thing and then expanding out, zooming out into all the other things that it could potentially lead to. Yeah. The whole wide world isn't a tiny thing. Always. Vanessa, you're described as a psychogeographer. I often call you a psychogeographer when I'm explaining you to people. Um, What on earth is psychogeography and how does it manifest in your work? Well, I've never quite had it on my business card, but (laughs) maybe I should. Maybe I should have a a few versions of a business card and that can be one of them. Uh, So psychogeography is, um, well, it it was, the term was coined by the situationists who were a French uh, group of artists and activists in the 1960s. Uh, And they used this term as um, a way of subversively being in places. So looking at them in ways they weren't intended to be looked at, moving through them in ways they weren't intended to be moved through, with this attention to the moods and atmospheres of places. Now, the situationists were doing this in order to bring about a revolution um, upon society and change the fabric of society. So they had this revolutionary intent And some psychogeography practices are still like that. However, it's become more generally applied to a a sensitivity to the moods and atmospheres of places and also this connection to walking. So the situationists of the 60s had um, a practice called the derive, which meant drift. So to drift through the city or to move around urban spaces without any particular plan and to experience... um, all there was to experience in these places and with that sort of attention to to atmospheres. And so that's become a big part of psychogeography as well. So this um, movement through the city that could be unplanned, being open to the unexpected, open to chance. Uh, And so that has um, guided my project Mirror Sydney, which I started in 2012. It's uh, 10 years old now. Really? That's when I started That's the when blog. you started it. Yeah. That's your book, Mirror Sydney, which is one of the most 
No. It's the be- best book about Sydney I've ever read. Oh, uh, thank, <laughs> thank you, Walter. It does have an enduring life, which is um, which, which is something I'm very proud of. I mean, it came out in 2017, so it's not the oldest book out there, but people still are finding it and write to me or they come up to me at an event or um, go and take me in some way saying that it, it they really enjoyed it and it made them look at the city a bit differently and that's always very artistically satisfying to hear that. Yeah, yeah. amazing. So many things that you say remind me of your work. So it's, you know, you're there in a tiny sentence as well, just as the whole world is in one small object. So uh, that is the, the creative process, I guess. In your superb memoir, 99, I remember reading it and thinking how old I am. That someone is looking back on the 90s as the past, you know. <laughs> but in your superb memoir, 99, and, dear listeners, if, if you want to feel old, you must read it because it's a memoir of the distant history of the 1990s. You talk about goth clubs in the 90s. You were a goth and uh, they smelled like, and I quote, hairspray, dry ice and clove cigarettes. How does smell affect your life and work? It's, it, when you read that to me again, I mean, I haven't read ninety nine for a while. It's abs. That was absolutely the smell of the goth, the goth clubs in the nineteen nineties. Um, and just before I answer you about smell, I think I mean one of the things that defined the nineteen nineties in particular it was the end of that pre digital era, and digital technology changed so much in the two thousands. So I think that. Um, further or more quickly defined the era than it would have otherwise, perhaps. Uh, And that's one of the things that spurred me on to write it. I mean, I wrote it um, based on objects that I had either kept from the time or I remembered from the time. I mean, not everything I'd, I'd held on to, although I do hold on to a fair amount of, of stuff, which um, you would know if you read my work. Um, but yeah, that, that, sense of being just before this major technological shift in our daily lives was important to the book in a quite ambient way. I mean, it's really about subcultures and goth being one of them. And when I think about entering the goth club, I do think about that that dry ice and hairspray and and cigarettes, that sort of artificial smell. Um, But smell is one of those um, senses that links so strongly with memory and more than more immediate than other senses, I think, and it can do that Proustian involuntary memory um, trick where it can really just put you back in a split second into a moment. Not every smell, of course, but some occasionally. And, yeah, there's certain combinations that are the goth smell, like clove cigarettes every time. And, I mean, they're not just smoked by... Goths. In fact, I haven't gone past, walked past a goth smoking a clove cigarette for a long time. But if I do ever get a, a whiff of that smell, it really just reminds me of that that time so strongly. So it's got this very strong connection to memory, and memory is very important to me and important to my writing. All of my writing is about memory and imagination working together. But those connections of those everyday things that I was talking about before, um, and and smells one of those ways that you can. Um, you can go deep and immediately into a, into a memory, uh, and it, it as a technique in writing too. So when I, I teach my students, I talk about writing with the senses. I mean, you don't want to, something you don't want to overdo. Like no. You don't want to um, overlabor your writing with sensory detail. But often, a well chosen sensory detail can be such an evocative. Um, 
element in writing. Um, and so, yeah, it works on a few levels. I mean, I'm someone who is very attuned to the senses in all different ways. Um, today I made sure to wear my um, in-the-library perfume, which is meant to smell like old books. It sort of does and doesn't. It's it's by a, um, a company called CB I Hate Perfume. I don't okay. know if you know them. I do they're, know they're, them, yes, yes. Yeah, from New York. I knew you would. I knew you would, Walter. Um, and it smells sort of... It smells sort of like sweet dust, I oh. guess, which which does smell somewhat like books. Mm, I can smell it now, <laughs> sweet dust. But what I can't smell and what I love about your observation of the detail is dry ice. It's, <laughs> it's so evocative. It made me think about what is that smell. <laughs> it's a very particular one and it's sort of a sensation as well, yes. I think, too, because you kind of – I mean, that's the other thing about smell. It's You you inhale it so it, it kind of – it enters you, your, your body, in a way that – so when you're vis- seeing something visually or even yeah. touching something, like that smell, that, um, that sensation of something being drawn into you is a very physical one. But I think, yeah, I think with the dry ice, it is the – it, it is the smoke itself mm. and um, and also, yes, just the, that combination. Yes, yes, that ectoplasmic combination. Do you have a favourite smell? Oh, I couldn't really say. That's a very that's putting me on the spot. Uh, I tend to like the kind of rosy, leathery kind of smells, um, smoky kind of smells yes. uh, in terms of fragrances. Yeah. So I'll say those because they're the ones that I'm drawn to. Things that um, smells that aren't like maybe sweet, but with a, a little bit of um, menace about them. Yes. Perhaps. What a great description! You should be working for a perfume company. You're someone who recognises beauty in things that others might ignore. You're always rescuing things from op shops and uh, and strange objects from from the not not too distant past, not quite antiques. And your vintage wardrobe is legendary. I can always see you from a mile away because you look so wonderful and stylish. And you also like to visit far-flung urban sites just to to see something that's piqued your curiosity. How can our sense of the aesthetic help us to live more interesting and varied lives? How can we how can we open ourselves up to the beauty of things? Well, our aesthetic sense is very, very important because it's often our first line of um, through which we understand and engage with the world. So it shouldn't be discounted and mm. it's worth careful attention to, I think. I mean, we're physical beings in a physical world. You know, we live with so much digital technology, but we're still very much physical bodies and uh, we move around a physical world and... Um, I think that reflecting on what your aesthetic is or the things that you're drawn to, attracted to, uh, is very important for what it um, it opens up into. So it can open up into histories and memories of things or uh, it's how we communicate with others uh, through our aesthetic sense. Um, and, I mean, often something like beauty, we're often told what we are what we should find beautiful, um, but often that's not what we find beautiful or not exactly. And, I'm, sh- no, yeah, every day of our lives we're probably being told something is beautiful in some way and, and having a reaction to whether it is or not. And we are also finding things beautiful that maybe um, others might not. I mean, one of my, um, my goals as a writer is to really focus on particularly m- maybe 
unlovely or under underappreciated objects and things or sensations or places and try to explain in some way, even if kind of ambiently, why I might find them beautiful or worthy of notice. So beauty can mean just worthy of paying attention to. Uh, it doesn't have to mean that there's a sense of, well, say in, in um, the example of places, it doesn't have to be a particularly glamorous place. But if I can show something about why I've, I find it interesting or significant, um, that is, um, yeah, I, f- I feel that that's an important thing to do to get people to think about their, their everyday life, the things that surround them, the places they move through with a greater sense of uh, connection to it, uh, and I mean that's what, where I think it can it can really be important to have that very attentive sense of aesthetic or attentive sense to what's around us because I mean that's where we live our lives we yes. live our we live our lives from day to day surrounded by usually a, a similar set of things and it's not extraordinary things it's quite ordinary things but if we can um, if we can attune ourselves to these things and the, the smaller pleasures within them or the the interesting elements of them or even just kind of what led them to be around us uh, that can really enrich your everyday life, I think. Yeah, yeah. Can you tell us, well, for a start, it's a matter of uh, legend and fact that your house is filled with the most extraordinary objects. I've, see, I've never, never been there, but I've seen the pictures and videos. Um, can you tell us about an object in your house that you find beautiful that other people may not, something that you've bought or discovered Oh, well, I mean, there's it's, it's, often people's attention will be drawn to things that are beautiful, like I've got this big big um, frame with uh, a butterfly collection in it that I write about in Gentle and Fierce, but that is actually beautiful, so maybe that doesn't fit the criteria <laughs> <laughs> of, um, of your, your uh, question. Uh, well, I mean, I have all sorts of op shop objects that I've collected over the years and... Um, I mean, there's some strange ones. Like I, I had for many years, I had this tin of golden circle pineapple um, <laughs> that was a big tin, so uh, many um, litres uh, in um, capacity. And that always got a lot of attention that um, I'd bought it from a second-hand store on Parramatta Road. One, there, there was always a sale. There was always big signs saying things that there was a sale uh, and it, but the sale was perpetual and, um, and, and that was just the way that they attracted people. Um, and it sold furniture and other – usually things that were a bit too odd or big or grotty for the op shop would be sold in this place. So it was a different class of stuff. So uh, therefore they had the, the golden circle <laughs> tin. Um, so I, I often had to justify why it was that I found this item so uh, interesting and I just think it was the fact that it had been kept and, um, was, and the contents were, were, were still in there and we, people had fun speculating on um, on what might be inside. <laughs> <laughs> Have you eat, opened it and eaten it? Well, I'm not sure where it's gone. I think <laughs> I might have um, – I think I might have got rid of it when I moved house. Oh. Uh, eventually. I mean, I d- it is a good idea to say goodbye to things sometimes. I do it very rarely. But um, I was thinking, I mean, the reason why it came to mind, I was writing I was writing something the other day and it came up in my 
in my thoughts and I thought, oh, do I still have that? And I looked around and I didn't. So I must have, I must have gathered the strength to say goodbye to it <laughs> at some point. Just before you mentioned the word, and it's a word I love. I love saying it. I love seeing it. Odd. O-D-D. Um, your work is suffused with this sense of the, the oddness um, of life and, and of objects. And you said you're an odd little child who noticed things. How is this sense of oddness important in your own aesthetic? I mean, oddness is a relative term, <laughs> really, is, isn't it? it is. And I think it's one that I've, uh, I guess, reclaimed as something, you know, it can be a pejorative term. If something's odd, it, do- it means it doesn't fit. Um, and, yes, that, that I- idea of not fitting in actually has never troubled me. I think um, like I, it, it has caused me trouble in my life in that I have felt, you know, excluded for various reasons like through shyness or, or whatever um, but I never I was I've always been quite happy to be me <laughs> and so I think oddness for me is like it's a position where you might not fit in for whatever reason but there's a strength to be had in that potentially uh, and so harnessing that strength has been important to me uh, in my writing and I mean I've written autobiographically for most of my writing life. When I started writing in zines, uh, a lot of zines were autobiographical and they still are. It's a a, a format where a lot of um, autobiographical or diaristic writing takes place and always has, at least in that personal zine um, mode. And... um, However, in the broader writing world, I remember when I started to write uh, memoir, as it would be called outside of the scene world, like in 99, yes, people were aghast that I was writing about the 1990s, which was just yesterday, um, and, it, and it, w- it would be called memoir. Um, so, I mean, yeah, yeah, it's even that sense of oddness of, yeah. of finding the, the recent, uh, of thinking about recent memory, yeah. um, has been something that's characterised my, my writing life and career. Mm. Let's move into the domain of action because that's something you observe as well in your work. I feel like when I move through the world that I stand out for, for all sorts of reasons. Do you feel that as well? Do you think that um, writers and creative people often move through the world differently? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly... Um, Writers often have a heightened sense of themselves in yes. place, which is not an egocentric thing. I mean, maybe sometimes it is, but I don't. I don't think it naturally is. I mean, writers are always observant and curious people. Yeah. You wouldn't. You wouldn't be able to be a writer if you weren't observant and curious. Although that can, um, that can um, create different. There's different kinds of observation, different kinds of curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, but writers are always uh, often very. Um, yeah, attuned to how they are moving within a space and things that they're doing uh, because they are such such good observers and we are such good observers of the world um, through our own particular lenses too. And so it makes us self-conscious. Well, maybe it does or even just not, not even that strong, like just a sense of uh, like a, the observer self, or at least, I mean, mate, I'm generalising here, I don't know what it's like to be uh, another writer, but um, from knowing a lot of writers and having this very deep and embedded writing practice myself, I mean, yeah. I, I think to be an observer, you 
um, are often aware of yourself as the observer or it's good critical practice to be aware of yourself as an observer. Uh, and that does bring about a sense of, of self-consciousness, even if it's a mild one. Yeah, yeah. Vanessa, your most recent book of essays, Gentle and Fierce, is such a terrific read. Even though they're not my memories, they bring back memories of my own. And I was reading um, in one of the final chapters, you were analysing your dreams. Is your dream life important to you? It is. I mean, I wouldn't say I keep dream diaries or um, or even, even pay special attention to dreams but they the the realm of dream and that can include daydream yeah. reverie and imagination, imagination is important to yeah. me so the the dreams i have at night um uh, that sort of subconscious processing sometimes they can bring about something interesting um but it's more that realm of daydream and imagination i think that i'm connected to um and very deeply connected to because i find it so fascinating that you can with this power of imagination you can really think anything or go anywhere or do anything it still seems like magic to me and in writing you're able to harness that magic and see what it can do on the page and of course it does different things on the page to what it does in your head when you're imagining and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't but it's certainly something that um that that is a very important quality to me. Now, I brought with me a quote from Walter Benjamin, which I think I'll read um, because it is about imagination. Oh, wonderful. Um, And it's also about memory. And it's from – so Walter Benjamin was a German-Jewish philosopher uh, in the early 20th century. And in one of his pieces called One Way Street, which is a collection of these short, not quite aphoristic, but, um, well, he called them – Denk builder, so thought images, like they're these short fragmentary pieces of writing put together in um, one-way street. And in one of these short pieces of writing, he writes, The faculty of imagination is the gift of interpolating into the infinitely small, of inventing for every intensity and extensiveness to contain its new compressed fullness. In short, of receiving each image as if it were that of the folded fan, which only in spreading draws breath and flourishes in its new expanse, the beloved features within. So that's quite a long description of an image which I find so beautiful, this idea of the folded fan. So a fan, when it's, um, w- when it's folded up, it's, like, it's kind of this one like stick-like object, but you fold it out and it has all these folds and different planes and it gets much larger. So for me, that figure of something that can be unfolded is, I mean, I think probably from our conversations so far, you can um, see how that would be important to me. So within something small, it can fold out to something larger. And that's the movement that happens within imagination too. It can take some um, something quite small or minor uh, and work with it and fan it out into something more significant or something beautiful. What a beautiful image and lovely, lovely to hear Walter Benjamin's voice. Vanessa, one final question that we ask all our guests. What's one thing our listeners can start doing today to live a more expansive life? Well, I think it's probably already answered in some ways. I I do think that kind of um, attentive loving loving attentive approach to everyday life is something um, it's something to cultivate. 
Uh, I mean, many days of our lives are quite bland or some are quite difficult, um, but I always try to at least have one or two things or moments uh, in those, those days to really focus on. And so I've kept a journal for many years. I don't write in it every day, but I write um, most days. And I made a decision many years ago to not so much write the narrative of the day, but instead I will focus on something from it. So thing could be a moment or some kind of fleeting feeling. Uh, And often it is something which sticks with me because of its intensity. And often that's a positive intensity. And so that practice has very much informed my writing life, but also my way of being in the world. And so journaling is kind of a way to make yourself do it, but it's something that can happen. just anyway, just through acts of attention. I mean, sometimes it can happen if you're, say, a big Instagrammer and you notice things, but then there's always that sort of sense of the the personal brand that comes with using those kinds of platforms. And I always think it's important to do things that aren't that nobody sees and you don't have to prove it to anyone. Like you can have this moment of loving attention, but you don't actually need to broadcast it to the world. You can just keep it for yourself. I always tell my writing students to um, do writing that no one's ever going to read or see and and that's a really important thing to do, as well as the writing that you'd hope to have published and you hope to have readers for, but to do writing that no nobody's actually going to to ever read. Because that I mean that for me, I found that very important. It's a way of honing my voice and my interests and really getting to know myself without having to perform anything. So you've heard it here, listeners. Keep a journal, write something in it every day and make sure nobody sees it. I love that idea of having a special little secret between you and the universe. Vanessa Berry, where can people find you? Well, they can find me in the bookstore. I've had four books published. Uh, most recently, Gentle and Fierce, Mirror Sydney before that, 99 before that. Uh, and there may even still be a few copies out in the world of my very first book, Strawberry Hills Forever, which was culled from my zines. Um, so I still make zines and appear at zine fairs. I also have an Etsy store where I sell my zines. Um, and I have a blog, Mirror Sydney uh, is the main one, the one that's been going for 10 years with my observation of Sydney uh, and various other places, but I think I'll stop there. I think people can probably find me if they, they, go, they go to one of those locations and they can uh, search further if need be. Vanessa Berry, you arrived and now you're leaving and we're sad to see you go, but I'm so glad you shared your insights into smallness, into gentleness and into the romance of the everyday. Thank you for being on our podcast. Thank you, Walter. It's been a very great pleasure in this day of mine to spend a bit of time with you. Bless you. Thanks for listening to Expanded Thinking. Vanessa's books can be purchased via the links in the show notes. Stay tuned for next week's episode, as I'll be catching up with renowned psychic intuitive Debbie Malone and talking to her about her work as a psychic detective and how we can all develop our own psychic gifts. And in the meantime... If you like our content, please subscribe and leave us a review. Expanded Thinking Podcast is hosted by Walter Mason and produced by Talking Words. The podcast is recorded on Gadigal land. We wish to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land and pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging.